reputation and the name that you go by in business is the biggest asset that you could possibly develop. How people define you is by your name, um, the pride that you take in your work or your idea or your company, and the way you conduct yourself. So um, I think we're going to talk on a variety of topics today, all related to entrepreneurship. Let me just give you a brief overview of where I'm coming from and uh, sort of what qualifies me, if at all, to give you some tools to, uh, to work with as an entrepreneur or to think about if you want to go down this entrepreneurship path. Um, I used to be a securities attorney. Don't hold it against me. Not all lawyers are bad. And uh, I ended up starting a company called Vintage Filings out of my basement where we did the SEC filings for public companies. Essentially, public companies have to do uh, their filings in a certain electronic format, so we did that. Um, started out of my basement in 2002, and by 2005, we had about 120 employees, uh, a little over 3,000 public companies worldwide, and uh, ended up selling the company that year to, uh, to a large newswire firm called PR Newswire. So at that point, I was like, okay, it was a fluke. I got lucky. I wanted to try to prove that it can be done again, again with uh, God's help. And we started a company called V Corp, which basically did incorporations and LLC formations. If you want to go out and start uh, you know, John's Pizzeria, Inc., you have to file with the Secretary of State. And so that was based out of Muncie. We grew that to about uh, 30, 40 people. And then last year, we sold that company to a multi-billion dollar company called Walters Clore. And uh, so now I spend my day juggling two or three other companies that we started. One is called V-Stock, which deals with uh, stock for publicly traded companies. Uh, the other is called uh, V-Check, which does background checks ranging from you know, the tenant who's going to lease an apartment to uh, multi-billion dollar companies that are doing lending, and they want to vet the background of the, uh, the board members. Um, and so all of my companies, V-Stock, V-Corp, V-Check, V-Filings, my wife jokes around that I should be walking around with a super V on my chest. And I just wanted to mention why the V became important and how important it is, but also how unimportant it is. When people start companies, I find that they spend an inordinate amount of time focusing on what the name should be, to the point where some companies spend so much time focusing on that, they never get out of the gate. And for us, it was as, uh, as unplanned as my partner and I were sitting at his dining room table one morning, and uh, there was a bottle of vintage seltzer on the table. He said, why don't we call it vintage filings? I said, as long as we make money, I don't care what we call it. And the only domain name was V Filings. And so, you know, thank God we had success with V Filings, so we kept it for V Corp and V Check, and so that's, uh, that's how it came to be. The... There are a couple of messages I want to try to import to you today, and then really I think Q&A is the best way to answer uh, any questions you might have or any thoughts you might want to, uh, to share. The first lesson that I wish somebody would have taught me back in the day is the following. Not every great idea makes money. Not every great idea makes money. Um, after I sold the first company, you know, I was like, oh, okay, this is great. We can just start companies and sell them all day long. And I ventured off into an area that I did not have experience in. So at the time, I was 30, 40 pounds heavier. And I was like, wouldn't it be great if somebody could show me what I would look like if I lost 30, 40 pounds? That would certainly motivate me, wouldn't it? 
And I don't care about the celebrities that have the before and after photos. They're celebrities. Even if they're 20 pounds overweight, they look great. But if somebody could show me what I would look like, I would buy whatever product you're selling. So we created this company called WeightView, hired a team of 30, 40 people out of India to digitize. And I'm dating myself. This is probably 15 years ago, before there were apps, before there were apps that do weight loss or you know, show you how you're going to look like when you're old. And um, things were going well. We had 300,000 uploads, I think. We, um, we had deals with Weight Watchers and Nutrisystems, and it was all free at the time. And then we were on Rachel Ray talk show, and we had 13,000 photos uploaded within 90 seconds. Crashed their systems, crashed our systems, which was a good thing. But at the end of the day, at that point, we said, okay, we've got enough traction. Let's turn on the price per photo. Five bucks, 10 bucks, I don't remember what it was. And all the uploads went right to zero. Everybody loved the idea. Nobody wanted to pay for it. And that was a very, very important lesson for me to learn the hard way, but it's something I've tried to uh, keep in mind as I start new companies. Um, I think one of the things that uh, the professor had asked that I touch on is sort of access to capital or when you want to raise capital. So I'll start there and then I'll back into sort of the life of an entrepreneur. You know, people think that they, the first thing, first order of business when they start a company is to go out and, and, and raise capital. And, and I have to disagree. In other words, when you see all these announcements like, oh, ABC Tech Company just closed a seed round of $25 million, keep in mind that's basically raising their hand and saying, I just gave away part of my company. And that's not always a good thing, especially if you think you have a great idea you don't want to give away equity. You want to keep as much of it as possible. I'm a very big believer in trying to bootstrap an idea and see where it goes. Um, when we first started Vintage Filings, the, the industry standard was that when you were doing an IPO, an initial public offering to go public, and this was 15, 20 years ago, people would meet at the printer meaning the lawyers, the underwriters, the bankers, the investors, and they would meet around this table for three, four, five days writing the prospectus. And it was exciting at the time. They ordered in food. They had video games, pool tables. By the third day, you're ready to kill yourself. But that's the way things were always done. And then when we started Vintage Filings, we were sort of breaking the mold. We said, let's do everything electronically. You don't have to spend three, $400,000 going into a drafting session we could do it all online. We were doing one deal for Citibank, probably our second year in, which was our biggest deal we'd ever done. And our offices were on top of La Marais, for any of you that have been, ever been there. It's on 46th and Broadway, nice kosher steakhouse on the bottom level. We had, at the time, the sixth floor. And the, uh, the attorney, which was from a pretty prominent firm, said, I think this was a Wednesday, they said, great, we'd like to have a drafting session and come into the offices on Monday. And my partner and I looked at each other, and as any entrepreneur would, we said, great, we look forward to having you. And then we turned to each other and said, like, what are we going to do? The entire sixth floor was basically made out of cubicles and small offices. So um, <clears throat> I think Wednesday night we went out and bought sledgehammers and uh, hired a contractor, Heimish guy, and uh, Thursday, Friday, Sunday worked. And by Monday morning, listen, it wasn't uh, mahogany wood and marble floors, but it was enough so that we had a space where we could fit a conference table. I think we rented it for a week. And we had you know, the 15 people sit around. And we ordered upstairs, you know, downstairs from La Marais. 
and, uh, and we made it work. <clears throat> and if I was somebody else in the business, I might have, before I even started to do that, I might have said, I need to raise money, I need to get fancy offices. You don't always need to do it. As an investor, I'd much rather see an entrepreneur bootstrap his idea than tell me that he raised money and spend it uh, unnecessarily. The, um, if you are going to pitch an idea or business to an investor or go out to raise capital from a fund, I'm begging you not to use the following line. The one line that irritates me, and this might just be me, other people might not mind it as much, when you come in and you tell me the industry is a $5 billion industry, and with my idea, if I could just get 1% of the industry, well, please never say that line. Tell me how you're going to get 1% of the industry. Tell me what makes you different that you think you can you know, own 2% of the industry. But don't tell me just because the industry is a billion-dollar industry. And if you get 1%, as soon as I hear that words, thank you. Have a good night. Um, in terms of where do you go to raise capital, there are so many different areas and so many different types of capital, whether it's seed money, whether it's funds, um, um, private equity. There are often times that you can just go to the existing relationships that you have. And I'm going to tell you one thing that was probably my biggest regret in college, and even when I went to law school, the biggest regret is that I was an antisocial guy. I still am today. In other words, if I go to a conference, right now I literally have to turn on a button within me to go network and schmooze and you know, work the room and collect the cards and cultivate relationships. I'd much rather be that guy in the corner that's checking his phone for messages for the full three hours. As such, when I was in college and when I was in law school, I didn't have so many relationships. And that is a big problem when you're in business because having those relationships is a tremendous asset. You don't know today which of you is going to go out and end up 15 years from now running a fund, and the other one of you could have easily approached him for capital, and vice versa. So I would very much encourage you to get to know the people in school, in your community, wherever you are, having relationships now will definitely help you 5, 10, 15 years from now. And if you don't have relationships, or frankly, if you're antisocial like I am, LinkedIn. I am a huge believer in LinkedIn. You know, my partner mentioned social media to me 10 years ago. I don't have Facebook, Instagram is something foreign to me, Pinterest, whatever else is out there, but I started playing around with LinkedIn, and I can tell you that there's a definite return on investment on the time that you spend cultivating relationships on LinkedIn to an actual return on the time that you're, that you're putting into it. And that's, I actually give other lectures on LinkedIn and Consult with companies on how they can build their businesses just on LinkedIn. So if you're not involved, open up an account. It's not complicated. I strongly encourage that. By a show of hands, just because I was told beforehand not everybody in here is, is a dying uh, to be entrepreneur. How many of you think that you are an entrepreneur, have an interest in being an entrepreneur, versus others that are just taking it because it's a marketing class and that's totally cool also? Okay, so you really have to be sure that you've got the DNA to be an entrepreneur. It definitely takes a certain type. Um, it takes somebody that is not going to take no for an answer, that's not going to get discouraged, and that has tremendous, tremendous persistence. You know, when I was, um, when I finished college, I thought for sure that I wanted to be an investment banker. 
And I went on some interviews and I sat down with, I think, a guy from Solomon Brothers, if they were still around. I don't even remember the name of the firm. But I remember what the guy said. The guy said, do you know, do you know what an investment banker means? I'm like, I don't know. Deals, deals. He does deals. Okay. He's like, let me tell you. It breaks down into two sides of the coin. If you're an investment banker, you're either that math geek who loves Excel sheets and algorithms and analyzing the deal. And I said, stop right there. That is not me. You know, the Farbmans asked my kids, we are not math people. Or he's like, you're a sales guy. You're out there pitching the deals. You're on the road five days a week. You're taking clients to dinner. You're going to games. I was like, no, no, no. That's not my, me either. He's like, well, then you don't want to be an investment banker. And he was right. In other words, I'm not a die-hard sales guy. I'm not a die-hard numbers guy. And so you have, really have to understand what an investment banker is before you get into it. You have to understand what an entrepreneur means before you go down that path. I want to talk about persistence. <clears throat> um, from time to time, we hire sales guys to go out and pitch the different services that, that we run. And uh, probably about eight, nine years ago, uh, my partner who had the office next door to me at the time said, oh, I just interviewed a sales kid. You know, I think I like him. Can you interview him? Fine. Comes over. I've asked permission to tell the story, so um, it's okay. Mike Lazar. I had the interview with him. Um, we were selling you know, corporate services to public companies. He had a little bit of experience selling luxury watches. I didn't feel that there was a great match. So I said at the end of the interview, thank you for coming in. I appreciate your time. Okay. Next day, around 1, 2 o'clock, my secretary says, oh, your, your 2 o'clock meeting here. I, I don't have a 2 o'clock. Oh, it's Michael Lazar. I was like, who's Michael Lazar? So she finds out, comes back. Oh, he's the guy that interviewed yesterday. I said, what's he doing here? He's like, no, he just wants to meet with you again. Okay, tell him I'm not available. Sorry, fine. That was on Tuesday. Wednesday, 2 o'clock, secretary comes on. Michael Lazar is who to see, here to see you. I'm like, well, Michael Lazar? Who's Michael Lazar? He's like, he's the guy that interviewed with you on Monday. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I was like, tell him I'm not available. Next day, guess who shows up at 2 o'clock? Mike Lazar. At this point, I'm ready to rip this guy. And I was like, get him into my office. i got to speak to this kid. I'm like, what are you doing? You're coming in here every day. He's like, I want to work for you. I was like, but I told you no four times. He's like, that doesn't matter. He's like, I'm just going to keep coming back until I can prove myself. And I said to him, you're out of your mind. You've got 60 days. Let's see what you could do in 60 days. Probably within the first five years, he generated over $5 million in revenue for us. And he is still with the company today, even though I sold it. Um, and he turned out to be the kind of guy that when people said, no, not interested, no, not interested, no, not interested, he said, great, when can we get started? Just didn't take no for an answer. And that is the type of persistence that's needed. To the extent where the following year, we were looking for more salespeople. And he turns to me and he says, I've got a brother. I was like, oh, no. Okay. <laughs> Fine, I'll meet with him. So I live in Woodmere. We go out to Starbucks. And I sat down with David. <clears throat> David, what are you looking to do? I think I could do sales. I was like, college experience? No. Have you ever sold anything before? No. Do you have a Rolodex, like a relationship with people that we can you know, approach for, for our products and services? No. I was like, David, with all due respect, you know, you're 23 years old. What have you been doing for the last three years, and why do you think you'd be good at sales? 
So he turns to me and he says, I was a paratrooper in the Israeli Defense Force. I was like, let me get this straight. You jumped out of planes for the last three years? He's like, yep. I was like, so you're probably not afraid to just walk over to a stranger and ask them for their business card. He's like, I jumped out of planes. I'm not afraid to ask anybody for anything. And I hired him. And within the first year, he met all of our expectations. And so there is something that has to be in the DNA of an entrepreneur or a salesperson for that matter that is just persistence when people tell you that your idea is not great, your idea is not worth pursuing. So let's say you have an idea or a product or you're starting a company or for that matter, you're working for a company. And I'm going to switch over to the marketing side a little bit in that you have to figure out what makes your product or your service or you stand out, right? How do you get through all the noise that's out there that, uh, that will allow you to pick up customers or investors, whatever the case may be? So a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to go to a uh, Inc. 500 conference in D.C., and um, one of the keynote speakers was a gentleman by the name of Tony Shea. You might have heard of him. He was the uh, founder of Zappos. If I was speaking to a class of girls, they would all know who Zappos is. Uh, you know, shoe company, probably do as well. So he said two things that I won't forget. <clears throat> the first thing he said is that no matter what your product or service, you have to come up with a wow factor. What's the wow factor? On his site, you can order to have the shoes delivered 24 hours, 72 hours. And from the get-go, he made it mandatory, or at least at the beginning stages, that all products and shoes would have to be delivered the next morning, within 12 hours. So that when people are expecting 24 or 72, they open up their front door, wow, they have their product before they even expected it. But the other thing that he spoke about at length was the definition of happiness, and he's written books on it. His entire corporate culture focuses on the definition of happiness. And what I learned was something I never really focused on. The definition of happiness means different things to different people. What do I mean? If I'm sp- selling a product and I'm speaking to the CFO of a company, for him, <clears throat> his definition of happiness might be that I'm saving him money. That's what's going to put a smile on his face. You could take that same product or service if I'm speaking to the CEO, so let's say I'm in the compliance business, saving a couple dollars doesn't make him happy. What makes him happy is knowing that his company is going to be compliant with the rules and regulations. That makes him happy. Versus if I'm speaking to a chief marketing officer, knowing that he can um, put out press releases or talk about my product, that's going to make him happy. So the goal inherent at every entrepreneurial level is to find out What makes your target audience happy? And that's something you always have to think about. Um, There's a book that literally changed my life. Um, I'm not ashamed to admit that I hardly read, like, ever. Like, I have seven kids. I like to learn. You know, I play ball three times a week. I like to think I'm busy, so I don't have times for, like, novels. But somebody mentioned this book to me, and I apologize. I forgot the name of the author. It's called The Go-Giver. And it's a small book, maybe 50 to 100 pages, small print, little red cover. I don't know, for some reason, somebody gave it to me as a present. I was in the car. I was at a red light. And I just looked at the first page. I promise you, I pulled over to the side of the road and I read the book from cover to cover. And it changed the way I do business. And the theme behind it all is that in order to succeed in business, you have to be the giver. 
you have to be the one that's giving out value. You can't ever come to a meeting empty-handed. I don't care if you are pitching uh, an idea, a product, um, looking to raise money. You've always got to go in there thinking, what can I give of value? Now, I get it. You guys are all on the young side, so you don't always have value. So if I sat down with a lawyer, I know that if I leave that meeting, if I send him a referral or if I send him a client, that's going to be something of value that he appreciates and will be very open to continuing the dialogue with me on my products. Some of the other things that you can use for value, if you see somebody that's in a particular industry and you come across an article, send them the article. They'll appreciate that you are thinking about them. If you see that there's a conference in a particular area, say, hey, you know, you're in Texas. I see this conference. I thought you might enjoy it. Um, even as much as a $25 gift card, I was once sitting with a really, really tough cookie paralegal. She wouldn't crack a smile, but I saw that in the back of her desk, she had all these pictures of cruises and, and boats and trips. And through the conversation, I tried to just get a little bit from her in terms of like, what's with all the, the cruises? She's like, I only get a certain number of vacations per, per year, and I, every chance I get, I take a cruise. So I went online. I bought a $50 universal gift card cruise whatever. I sent it to her, and she melted like butter. And you just have to find something that makes them happy and that allows you to give them a little bit of value. Um, I don't want to take up too much time, but I, I do want to say like this. If you have an idea or a business, you, know, you certainly want to vet it, um, but that's not always going to be the, the uh, sure ticket to success. There are companies that I've started. One in particular was a company called Stock Clock, and it was like a reminder system. And I literally spoke to 50 to 100 attorneys, CEOs, Everybody loved it. But again, until they are ready to write a check or to actually purchase a product, you don't know if it's going to succeed. Um, there was a company that came to me 10 years ago and said that um, an Israeli guy, he has an idea. He basically wants to take flavored syrup and put it into seltzer. And I looked at him. I'm like, you know, listen, I'm a Starbucks guy. I'm a Coke guy. I'm not interested in flavored seltzer. Anyhow, it ends up being SodaStream, worth like billions of dollars. And so not everybody's going to be in favor of your idea, but if you believe in it, then you have to be persistent. So the thing that I would leave you with is just to really make sure that, um, that you're ready for a journey because there's going to be a lot of ups and a lot of downs. And the trick is to enjoy the journey, to enjoy the path, to get excited about building something from nothing. And at each stage of the way, when you see your idea... Even, even on the, the baby steps at the beginning, you have an idea and you want, you, know, you want to think of a name. And then you think of a name and then you file for a, a website. Then you build a website. And within a short period of time, you're like, oh, you know, see, my idea became a website. And your website becomes a company. And then you get your first customer. And then you, you know, finish your first product. And then you get your first large order. Every step of the way, there are milestones to celebrate um, and to enjoy the journey. So if I can uh, help in any way, I'd be happy to if there's any... Questions, I can answer uh, any topic. Uh, more than happy to do so. Sure? I guess I'll go first. <laughs> um, what got you into like, entrepreneurship? So that's, that's a good question. I, so I always. I didn't know. I always wanted to be either this investment banker or a lawyer. Um, in 11th grade, I had a Rebbe that was like a great, great teacher, and I was like, oh, he's a lawyer on the side, I'll be a lawyer. 
So what happened was <clears throat> I, I, I went to law school, didn't graduate uh, top of my class at all, um, had to use a friend of a friend of a friend to try to get me a job at my first law firm. And um, I was there for about two years, and I was told that if you're an attorney and you bring in some business, you get a cut of what you bring in. Like, okay, that's fun. And so I started networking on my own. I, again, being an antisocial guy with no Rolodex and no sales history, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I knew a few people, brought in some business, and it occurred to me the following. As a lawyer, I was bringing in the business. I was responsible for the business. I had to actually do the work. I had to collect on the bills. And at the same time, I was only getting a small percentage of what was brought in, 2%, 3%. So it occurred to me that each and every partner is running his own business within a business. And if that's the case, that I have to do all this for somebody else, why don't I do it for myself? And so, in retrospect, I was out of my mind. But after only practicing law for two years, I started my own law firm, worked out of my basement, because I said, I'm doing all that anyway. And then one thing led to the other, um, and I found a hole in the system with these SEC filings, and I said, okay, I can plug up uh, something that's missing in the industry, which is always the best type of business uh, to launch rather than it being a luxury item, try to uh, find a, a problem within an industry and come up with a solution for that. I'm just wondering, um, how did you, how did you like, pitch your idea to investors? I mean, is that how you raised the money in order to you know, um, start your business and everything? So it's a good question. I, I've been very fortunate and blessed that in any business that I've done, I've never taken outside money. Um, and so I've never, uh, I deal with hundreds of investors in, in other capacities, but I've never had to sort of pitch to raise money because when I started, I started out of my basement um, and it was a service business. I didn't have to develop like a prototype or deal with manufacturing in China. Um, but as I said, there are plenty of resources through LinkedIn that even if you don't know a soul, within a week you can get in front of people that write checks. <coughs> But just like idea. Explaining your idea. I mean, again, there's different levels, right? In other words, you don't want to go out and pitch an idea until it's you know, been honed and you really know what you're asking for. Why do you need the money? Use of, it's called use of proceeds. Um, you really want to make sure it's tight before you go out to real investors. It could be a little bit uh, loose if you're approaching friends and family. But uh, to go out to the real world, even for small money, 25, 50 grand, you need to have it uh, to have everything you know, tight and in place. Mm-hmm. So I know that each business requires a lot of work, and you say you're doing like three or four businesses at a time. So when you say you're just like the ideas guy and you like delegate most of the work out to other people, how does that work? Or are you just like busy around the clock? It's a great question. Is how do you how do you juggle a couple businesses? Um, it's it's a challenge at times, and I I do attribute the success of our first business, which was our largest exit, to the fact that my partner and I did nothing but vintage filings for five years at that time. And now we both have our time divided. Um, But the answer is you have to surround yourself with the right people. Um, When I was with that partner in vintage filings, I was the operations guy. I was the guy that slept on my couch 24-7 in case emails came in. And he was out there selling 24-7, you know, 
five flights a week all over the place. Now, in one of some of my other businesses, I've changed that role where my other partner is the operations guy and I'm the guy out there bringing in the business. I'm only able to do what I do because the audience is pretty much the same. It's a public company. It's um, a CEO, a CFO. So whether somebody is looking for a background check or SEC filings um, you know, or incorporations, the audience for all my companies are primarily the same. If I were to go out and start a, uh, a liquor company tomorrow, I'd be hard-pressed to figure out how to do it on my own. So uh, mm-hmm. it depends on what industry you're, you're focused on. Do you feel like your work experience, especially like, as an attorney, has like, helped you in terms of like, <coughs> selling like, services and stuff like that, or like anyone straight out of school without any sort of work experience could kind of swing in there? So I, I wholeheartedly believe that God has a plan for everybody in terms of if I didn't get here, I wouldn't have gotten there. And if I didn't have this terrible thing happen, then I would never have gotten to the next point. Um, but I think that it also depends on what the goal and objective is, right? So probably to, to sell and to pitch and to be energetic and passionate – I didn't have to go to law school to do any of that, and I don't necessarily think being an attorney helped me with any of those skills or qualities. I do think that being an attorney certainly allowed me to better analyze deals. Um, It certainly allowed me to be a little bit more comfortable walking into a meeting with other attorneys rather than me just feeling that they have so much leverage over me. Um, And so I think that it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Um, if, if, if it's a matter of starting a company and just pounding the pavement and being passionate about it, I think anybody has that ability to do so. And if you don't, that's okay also. Just find a partner that does, right? I mean, there are people that have brilliant ideas. And I've, I've, I've met many, many, um, let's call them mad scientists or engineers or programmers that literally after an hour of speaking to them, I want to shoot myself but they have an amazing product. And if they just had a mechanism or a sales engine to bring this product to the world, it could be a multi-million dollar idea. So if you're that mad scientist, just find somebody else that can help you get to the next level. So uh, you said, like, obviously, if you, uh, for your deal cutting, what was very important for you was the experience in law. But- would you say there are certain general skills one should hone, just like general entrepreneurship skills that you can learn, and how would you go ahead and learning those skills? Absolutely. Um, I think that you can be a tremendous successful entrepreneur if you have determination. And what I mean by determination is as follows. Let's say, for example, you, know, you could speak to a CEO, and he might say, um, oh, I'll outsource... Uh, my salespeople, and I'll outsource my marketing firm, and I'll outsource my social media management, and I'll outsource all this, versus the, the entrepreneur that'll be like, no, I'm just going to roll up my sleeves. I'm going to spend 20 hours on YouTube learning how to do social media. I'm going to spend 20 hours on YouTube learning how to draft documents. I'm going to spend 20 hours on YouTube and learn what it takes to negotiate and just really focus on on growing your skills and abilities. I, I don't think that, um, I don't think anybody that wants to spend the time and the effort will be disappointed in, in, in what they get to. Mm-hmm. 
But those are more like self-education things. You wouldn't say that's really something you learn in school. Again, it depends on the industry, right? If you're, if you're an entrepreneur that's selling a, um, <clears throat> a chemical or if you're selling a biotech solution or, for that matter, if you're selling a technology, then I want to make sure that that CEO spent the time and effort and went through school. Listen, if I see on the CEO of a, a biopharma company that this guy graduated you know, from, from a university and spent you know, X number of years in, uh, in science, that's going to make me feel a lot more comfortable investing in his company. Versus there are other businesses that don't require that, right? I, you know, if, I'm, if I'm dealing with a tech company or software company and they want me to invest, and it, it happened about uh, six months ago, <clears throat> a gentleman had been working on a software company for about five years, legal software, and the only reason I gave, and he was a terrible presenter, I mean, no personality at all. And the only reason I gave him sort of the time to try to understand his business was because he had been practicing in this niche area of like labor law taxes for 40 years. And if he didn't have that schooling and education and experience, I wouldn't have viewed him as a credible um, opportunity. So I think, again, it depends on the industry where the, uh, the schooling will come into play. Um, so I understand, like, you know, you see a lot of investors with regards to people making their own business, but do you see as many with people who are interested in maybe joining a franchise or something? And then, you know, you can pitch, like, the idea, like, you know, this will very help, like, you know, in this, you know, location. Do you think it's the same kind of <clears throat> concept, or is it... Where, where you have an idea for a franchise or something to add well, on to an existing franchise? Yeah, add on to an existing franchise, like you're joining I, you know, you're the one in charge of the business. But. I, think, I think anybody who owns a franchise is going to be, <clears throat> on the one hand, they're going to be reluctant to seeing any type of change or um, joint venture because the reason that they are a franchise is because the same one is cookie cutter all across. But at the same time, if you come up with the right idea, they're going to be wide open. It's funny, I was telling you, Professor, that um, I met on LinkedIn a uh, very lovely woman. Her name is Vanessa Braxton. She is an absolute whirlwind of energy and passion. <clears throat> and she was in government industry for 30 years, I think, and decided to come up with, wait for it, Black Mama Vodka. Black Mama Vodka. You can search for it. She was in our offices. She gave me a couple of samples. Kosher, by the way. And um, she was doing a couple million dollars, I think, online in terms of uh, Amazon sales and things like that. <clears throat> but that wasn't enough for her. She wanted to um, have uh, she wanted to have retail as well. And so she was telling me how she approached, um, I think it was IKEA. IKEA is pretty big, mm -hmm. and they have pretty cookie cutter ways of doing it. And she was able to do something with them where she teamed up with them. I think there was a press release. Um, and she's totally revolutionizing that retail idea of instead of a Starbucks, you've got like a Black Mama teas, Black Mama pastries, Black Mama vodka. And then she also got Amazon involved in terms of having Amazon drop-off points. So she took a, a very simple idea and really tried to bring it to the franchise world. And uh, we'll see if she's successful at it.
Okay, great. Anybody else? Um, Justin, because no one has questions. Please. Uh, this is not exactly related, but sort of related. Uh, as an entrepreneur and an investor, which uh, direction, what, what, what do you see making it for in 20 years from now? What industry or technology? <clears throat> yeah, so, so I'm probably not a great um, person to answer that since if I would have put something into SodaStream, it'd be a, a different story. But um, what, you know what I love about being an entrepreneur and I love about business is you just don't know. And that's, that, that's like the most exciting thing for me. There are ideas that I have seen that are multi million dollars idea, and I'm just like, who in the world would even think of that and nonetheless fund it, nonetheless buy something like this? And, they, and they're phenomenal. Versus the other way, there are things that I think are just you know golden and, and there's no audience for it at all. I mean, I do think things are certainly moving into the worlds of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin. Um, I do think that in media... There's going to be a, a total shift. You know, I don't think people are going to be spending money on TV or radio ads per se. There's a, there's a big shift in terms of much more um, social-oriented marketing. But, um, yeah, there's no particular industry that I see standing out. Are you constantly like, trying to grow in terms of like, new ideas and like, new businesses and stuff like that? Or are you kind of, like- Always. Um, I, I live to see ideas. I'll be honest, I rarely do anything with them because um, you know, a lot of the ideas just aren't <clears throat> either business-worthy, they don't have the right management. Um, for business to be success, very often you have to bet on the jockey. I, I'm a firm believer in that. And if the jockey isn't the right guy, then he has to be willing to step aside to let somebody else come in. But um, I, I have gone outside of my comfort zone a couple times and I don't want you to think it's all fun and glory. I've absolutely lost my shirt. 